Well, it's such a privilege to be with you all this morning. Always, I think, one of the treasured moments of the church to watch two people publicly portray the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord, to claim publicly that Christ is theirs and that they hope in Him. This morning we'll be in Philippians chapter 3. If I were to ask you the question, what are you pursuing in life? Like, what would give your life this sweet sense of accomplishment and satisfaction, whereby, metaphorically, you would just relax? Like, you would find rest in having that. I don't know why it is, but it seems like the lottery has been really moving lately, and there's $500 million being given to someone. I imagine that holding that cash in hand might give their soul rest. Maybe for the person who's labored diligently through college or graduate school, as they enter that moment of graduation, they finally turn in their last project, their last finals turned in. There's that sense of rest. That weight is off the shoulders, that job has been accomplished, they finally are satisfied. Maybe for the young man is hoping for a girl to say yes, and she finally does. That wedding day is that day when their heart and soul will rest, will be satisfied. I were to ask you, what do you pursue in life? What is, your, what, is, what is what captures your attention, your imagination? What captivates your soul? What stirs your heart with anxiety when it is threatened? What causes temper when you lose it? What is it? When you catch yourself in one of those moments of daydreams, what do you imagine you have? I think that's a question many of us don't ever stop to ponder. We just live from day to day. But if you think about it, what captures your imagination, what promises rest, what do you find your heart craving? If I were God and said, hey, what could I give you that would make you happy? The answer that first springs to mind is what? And some of you, it might be something more metaphorical. It might be um, children who are saved. Maybe it's a home at peace. Maybe it's financial security. Maybe it's health for which no amount of money can truly promise security. What are you pursuing? The text in front of us is actually not only answering that question, it's prescriptive. It's telling us what to pursue in life. But it's built on a foundation, a theological foundation. It's, it's not as though he's just saying, hey, you can pursue anything and whatever you pursue will satisfy. He's actually challenging that template in this whole passage that you can take away what most of us pursue and the Christian who gets it should still be satisfied. When we look in chapter 3, verse 1, he starts off with this call to rejoice and the object of our joy, the center of our satisfaction is Christ. Rejoice in the, in the Lord. 
And then you come to chapter 4, verse 1, and a very similar but a slightly different emphasis is the call to stand firm. Oh, yeah, you're less familiar with that one, aren't you? Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown stand firm, thus in the Lord. That the, the, the stability and the resilience of the Christian life through, through both sweetness and temptation, through good things, through hard things, through suffering, through pain, is the Lord. And we are called to both find joy in him and what he has accomplished for our sakes and who he is as a person. And we are called to anchor our souls to him. These are not opposites. These are complementary, very similar challenges that we would find joy and stability in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do you do that? What should, what should the life look like who's pursuing that joy and that firmness, that stability that comes from the Lord. I want you to look in the text this morning in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. If you're there with me, the Apostle Paul testifies. And let me just point out, the pronouns are almost all first person, I, 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 because he's, he's calling the Philippians to follow his example. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now this is a passage that's about pursuit. The main verb of verse 12 is I press on. The main verb in verse 14, I press on. That's the main verb of both central sentences of the text this morning. He's calling us to press on. You might find it a little frustrating. If you paid attention as I was reading, you might have been left with the question of press on toward what? Look at the text again. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make, make what? It. My own. Because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. At some point you're going, what's it? I mean, continue on. Look in verse 14. I press toward the goal. And we're all saying, what's the goal? Like, pressing towards what? What's the it? What's the goal? For the prize. What is the prize of the upward call? To what have you called us? Like, there's this big, huge question mark in this text that just forces us to wrestle with exactly what the apostle is challenging us to move toward. If someone were to ask you, like, so did you get it? Out of just no context... Your question might be, get, get what? And they're like, well, it's super important that you have it. You don't want to leave home without it. And you're like, well, I have my wallet. No, 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 that's not it. Well, tell me what the it is. No, no, you should know. If I have to tell you, you don't have it. Please tell me what it is. That's this text. 
Well, there's enough context around this that we shouldn't be just wondering. Go back to the previous portion of Scripture we've looked at already, and you'll notice that the apostle is really clearly calling us to value and treasure knowing Christ. Look down in verse 8. He says, I count loss everything but what? The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And he continues on in in different ways. I, I want to gain Christ. I want to be participating with him in his sufferings. I want to walk in the fellowship of his resurrection power. He's calling us not only just to intellectually understand who this Christ is, but that we would know him in his saving grace, to walk with him as one who fellowships personally with the Lord through prayer and hears his voice only through the pages of Scripture, that we find ourselves absolutely managed and filled with and driven to walk with Christ, but it is more than that. In fact, if you were to go down through the end of the passage, let me just take you down to verse 7, where he says, brothers, join in imitating me. So so after giving this testimony, he's going to say, I'm not just giving this testimony so that you might look at me and be like, wow, look at Paul. I'm giving you this testimony so that you can see how I live so that you might come and be like me. He's saying, I'm giving you this example so you can imitate me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So not merely Paul, but there are other believers around us who we are called to follow. Now, as we continue on, he says, for many are enemies. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. And then he transitions in verse 20. But our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly, our humble, our weak bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So so the apostle is challenging the whole church to grab a hold of the prize. The prize for which God has given this this upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that we might obtain this goal. And what's the goal? It is to know Christ. It is to know him in a way beyond what you can know him in this life. It is to be transformed into his very glory. And I would suggest to you in verse 20, and it is to walk to heaven or enter into heaven with a full glorious welcome so that it's not merely being raised from the dead, but it's being raised from the dead and glorified with Christ in heaven. And this is what captures the apostle's attention. This is what he's pursuing. It's not merely, well, I love Jesus and that's enough. It's that he loves Jesus Christ, his king, and he's living for the treasures, the glories, and the moment he enters the heaven that forever he would be glorified with Christ whom he has glorified. So I have phrased it in my notes this way. The Apostle Paul sees as his goal in life walking in fellowship with the king and for his kingdom's glory. If you go to 1 Peter, and I'm not necessarily encouraging you to go there now, but there's this call to recognize that suffering produces for us an eternal weight of glory. That glory is not merely for Christ. It's clearly in the context for the believer as well. So sometimes you can have this this 
concerned that in a text like this, I am only devoting myself to the glory of Christ and there is no reward for me. That is never the picture of our Father's response to those who are faithful to his Son. It is that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So when Paul speaks of this gain, he is not merely gaining Christ. He is gaining for Christ glory and in so doing, sweet welcome in the presence of Christ. That is what drives this apostle. And he says then, should drive us. So what is chasing the right thing? Chasing the right thing is walking in such a way that we become fellow partakers of Jesus' suffering and resurrection power. That's going back to verse 12. Excuse me, verse 11. And we walk in personal communion with him so that heaven welcomes us with glory as the sun gets glory from his people. We're longing for the day when we'll be welcomed home. We're looking forward to the treasures of heaven. We are living in such a way that our eternal destiny is richer and richer as we pursue Christ himself. If you go back to chapter 1, the apostle says this pretty clearly. For me to die is, but what does he get if he dies? If you go back to chapter 1, he doesn't just say, for to me, to die is gain. He says something a little bit more significant. That in the present time, he is, he is living as Christ. And to die is gain. But what happens if he dies is he actually gets fellowship with Christ. Look at verse 22 of chapter 1. If I'm to live in the flesh, that's fruitful labor. And what I choose, I, I, I cannot tell, but I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ. So when we say, Paul, why is heaven gain? He says what? Because when I get heaven, I get Christ. Now think about what the apostle is saying here. Does he walk with Christ on this earth? Is he in fellowship with the omnipresent Son of God? Right. He is not saying somehow I'm a stranger to Jesus Christ, but there's a sweeter, more precious communion with him that awaits us on the other side of this life. And I'm longing for that day. Like the soldier who's away from his family at times of war, and he might be able to call them. He might even be able to video call them. But he longs for that moment when he'll be restored to that personal presence, that union with his whole family, where he can hold them, he can talk to them, he can speak and interact, and he can smell them, and he can touch them, and he's in their presence the Apostle Paul is owned and captivated. He's pressing on, which is not merely just someone who communes with Christ through prayer and thinks that that is all that the Apostle is speaking to. So chase the right thing. The King and the King's glory, these are the right thing. Number two, put your eyes on Christ. Or if you want a little more, keep your eye on the prize. Right, that's the text here in front of us, isn't it? Keep your eyes on the prize. Fix them to Christ, that you might be conformed to him, that you might walk in fellowship with him, that you might know the power of his resurrection, that you might participate in his sufferings. Walk with Christ. Well, he says this because there are dangers. This is why you must press on. Look at the dangers that will cause distraction. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained this. It's the idea of grabbed a hold of. 
or am already perfect, but I press on because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Again, that same idea of, of attaining and owning. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. Now, if you didn't catch it, there are a couple warnings there that will cause us to be disinterested, to lose focus, to coast. The first one is this thought. Look in verse 12 again. You think the race is over because you already have it all. Not that I've already... You see this thing, this thing, this prize. I think they run Christ. You see this, you see this in real races. I remember a few years ago, I think the runner was uh, running for one of the um, Pacific Northwest colleges, and he was way ahead of the whole race, and he was a little frustrated that the tepid reaction of the audience wasn't, wasn't cheering him on enough, and he looks at the audience and he starts calling them to celebrate his victory. You know what happens while he's doing that? He gets passed up and he gets second in the race. Now, I just want you to meditate for just a moment on who's writing this text. The Apostle Paul, who says in other texts, I have labored more abundantly than all the other apostles. And read again the thought, I have not yet obtained. Now, if we're in a marathon, metaphorically speaking, and the Apostle Paul is saying, I have a long way to go. And I can't link the tent rest to relax feeling that I have somehow gotten to a place where I can rest. No one in this room. I'm pretty confident no one in this room has suffered for the cause of Christ like the Apostle Paul. I'm pretty confident that no one in this room has shared the gospel and suffered for it and moved the gospel into new locations like the Apostle Paul. And he's saying, I am still not where I need to be. I am still pursuing Christ in his glory. I am still motivated to keep running this race because I am not yet where I want to be. I have not yet claimed the prize. I have not crossed the finish line. I am still running hard. If you think the race is over because you already have it all, there is a sweeter fellowship coming for those who get to heaven. You don't have the fellowship of Christ that you will have in heaven. You do not yet own the glories of heaven as you will in heaven. There is more coming. This is not the fulfillment of the kingdom. There is more kingdom than you could ever imagine, and this is not it yet. Live for that. You are not yet all that God wants you to be. You are not yet Christ-like as he wants. And sometimes trials expose that. Have you ever had one of those moments in your life where you feel like you're doing all right spiritually and something happens and you lose it, right? You grumble, you complain, you get angry, you get discouraged, you get depressed, you quit something you shouldn't quit. How many of you have made New Year's, re New Year's resolutions to read your Bible every day? How long did you get? How far into the year? Maybe read through the Bible in a year and about November, you're still in the Old Testament prophets where you quit. And you realize you have to finish the prophets and get all the way through the New Testament, and you have 38 days left, and they're not going to do it. The Apostle Paul says, keep at it. We are not where we should be. God is still working in us, so press on. That's not the only danger. You think you've already got it all. You think you're already good enough, right? He says, I am not already perfect. Now, here's what's interesting about this word. The idea is a word of completion. Like, he's all that he should be in Christ. 
He's like, I am not, I'm not someone who's obtained it all. I'm not as mature as I should be. I'm not as complete as I should be. And then you come down into verse 15, and he says, let all of those, let, let those of us who are mature. I find that a little complex. Right? He's like, hey, I do not consider myself as mature. Three and a half verses later, if you're mature like me, you'll think this way. That's a little challenging, but I, I, I think as he's running his race, he's recognizing that there's an element of maturity and still a not yet element as well. It, the Apostle Paul is not saying, hey, you're on the starting block. You've got nowhere. You're nothing. You should just give up and quit. He's saying, hey, you're running your race. And if you have a little bit too high of a pin yourself, you stop pressing. You start relaxing. And while we might in some ways say we're mature, we have a handle on some of these scriptural truths and God's character is worked in us by the grace of the Holy Spirit as he brings this scripture to light and to life in us, I'm still not where I need to be. So we can have an honest spiritual assessment, see spiritual maturity within us, and still recognize we're not as mature as we should be. The final warning really focuses on keeping your eyes on the prize. Look in, in the end part of verse 13. It says, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. The title of a book that this reminds me of where it says, leaving the past in its place, which is in the past. It's amazing how the past leaps into our minds and owns our present. Do any of you have memories from grade school or junior high or high school that still just haunt your thoughts? I do. I mean, some of them are dumb. Like, I remember missing a basket at the end of a game that we ended up losing by a basket. That's like 24-year-old memory that still comes up. I can get over that. But how about spiritual failures, discouragements, or victories? Some of us are, are telling war stories of victories gone by in the past because we've retired from the race in the present. Some of us are so discouraged by our past that we have no drive in the present. We feel like the goodness of Christ is so far ahead of us, there's no way we could win this race. We're out of it. And we quit. Discouragement fills our hearts. Perhaps you are living in the presence of another sinner and they're the cause of discouragement because of past injuries and damage done to you and you feel like there's no change. And so your mind is still absorbed with past injuries and you're no longer able to move forward in joy because of past sorrows. When a sprinter looks behind them, they lose speed. They stumble. They fail to pursue and press on. I just want you to, again, consider who's writing this text. If anyone could have said, you know, I've accomplished a lot. Retirement has my name. I'm going to get a nice Mediterranean coastal home. 
and I'm gonna I'm gonna work in a little country church and just ride this thing out. And maybe the church in Jerusalem and Philippi and other churches will support me in my retirement. And I could have just clocked it in and or clocked out and sat in his proverbial lazy boy on the Mediterranean coast and spent a lot of time in prayer. You have an elder statesman of the church who has no quit in him. So let me just be a little direct. If you're thinking, when I get to retirement, I'm going to rest, you're not reading this text correctly. What you probably should be thinking is, man, I can't wait till retirement when I no longer have to earn money to survive. I can just devote my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, perhaps you're in that stage of life where you're thinking, well, I just need to set aside my attention on church and stuff because I really need to focus on building career for the sake of my family so that we have enough to survive. You're still, still not seeing the text. Your eye is not on the prize and the worth and the treasure of Christ. It's on how you can build wealth. I want you also to consider that the Apostle Paul was an accessory or maybe even guilty of murder. Can you imagine when the Apostle Paul says, forgetting those things that are behind, the wealth of experience that's behind him would both defeat his joy or give him cause to rest, and neither one of those is okay. He's been stoned for the cause of Christ. He's been imprisoned for the cause of Christ. He's been beaten for the cause of Christ. He has suffered personal injury by people hurting him. He has, caught, he has seen defections from him. In, in 2 Timothy, he says, everyone else has left me. Can you imagine what that costs him in terms of personal capital to lose friends in the ministry and be alone in prison facing his death? If anyone could have said, you know what? I have paid a lot. It's time for me to just rest and have peace. It would be the Apostle Paul. He says, no, I press on because of what treasure lies in store for me ahead. I dare not rest. It is so good and so glorious and so right for me to live for my king, not for myself, that I press on. I do not know what owns your soul where you're dropping your car in neutral and just coasting. Press on. Get your car back in gear. And forget What's behind you? Listen, some of you have been coasting for a couple years. Get the car in gear and repent. Ask God to forgive you and forget those things that are behind. Some of you have been climbing a lot of hard hills and you're tired. And you want to say, you know what? I deserve a break. But if you're forgetting what's behind of you, behind you, saying I deserve a break is you meditating on what's behind you and how hard you've worked and now you deserve rest. Forget it. Maybe guilt and despair own you. Again, if Paul's an accessory to murder, if he was there looking out with approval, as Acts says, as people were stoning the sweet servant of Christ named Stephen, can you imagine how that memory haunts his conscience? He says, I'm the chief of sinners. I don't think he's just like saying that to like parade a false humility in front of people. He was involved in a murder. That would not be like one of these, it wasn't an assassination by poison where the guy just falls over asleep. He watched a man of God who is preaching and in the act of preaching, they are crushing his body with stones and he has that memory living in his conscience 
except for Christ forgiving us. If anyone had to forget what was behind him, the Apostle Paul knew he could get tripped up in guilt and anxiety. He would have known he could get tripped up in self-congratulation. He could have gotten tripped up by saying, I've done enough. And he will not let anything take his eyes off of the prize of owning and walking with and seeing Christ glorified through him. That one day, when he enters heaven gates, being resurrected from the dead, he'll be glorified and see his Savior and fellowship with him forever. That owns his heart. Does it own yours? Does it own yours? Are you holding on to bitterness? Are you getting hard and calloused? Are you getting tired and weary? Are you sick of failures and you're feeling defeated? Maybe you have a string of victories and you think you can rest a little, that you're good enough. Maybe you look around the room and you're one of the smartest persons in here. And you're like, you know what, I got this thing. I read my Bible every year for the last 10 years. I think I got this pretty good. And you're just starting to feel that confidence that leads to rest before you enter his rest. Press on. Press on. Please don't forget this final textual point that the apostle makes. It's not insignificant. Look again with me in verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained. So he has this mental mindset that he keeps pressing on us. I'm not already perfect, but I press on to to own this prize. And and why does he do this? What, What cause energizes him? Look at the text. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Just hold that in your mind for just a second. I want you to drop down to 14. I press on to the goal. For the prize of what? The upward call of God that happens in union with Christ. Okay, so he's given us two thoughts. He's like, I press on because I am owned by Christ. I press on because of the call of Christ. Now, both those phrases might be missed, but he is challenging the Philippians to recognize that the cause of pressing on is the preceding work of grace. That is, the call came before anyone can press. He presses on because Christ has already captured him for grace. Grace comes before we make any effort for God. This is not Paul saying, try harder, work better, do more. This is the Apostle Paul saying, Christ Jesus has taken me captive by grace. And now that I am his, I can press on. Grace always comes before the call to action. God never calls us without first giving us grace, and the whole time we are on a lifeline of grace as we live for him. We are never called to accomplish something without God's grace first entering our lives and sustaining us in it. He presses on because he's already been taken captive through Christ. You know that this is true. For instance, in 1 John, we love him because he, oh, he first loved us. He first loved us. You did not love Jesus until his love saved you. You do not first come to him 
He first comes to you. He preaches this to Israel because they have a tendency to be self-righteous in the Old Testament. He goes, I did not choose you because you were greatest, Deuteronomy tells us. I chose you because I decided to love you. I, I just want you to think through that for a moment. Imagine that you're sitting there at a nice romantic dinner with your spouse and you're reminiscing of the good old days when you were dating. And she looks at you and goes, you know, I didn't love you because you're handsome, because you're not. I didn't love you because you're funny, because you're the only one that thinks you are. I didn't love you because you treat me nice, because you don't. You're like, man, I'm feeling so warm and fuzzy right now, honey. And she goes, I love you without regard to how good looking you are or what you do to serve me. Or how funny you are. I love you because you're my husband. I don't know if you'd be happy or sad. But you'd be humbled. And you'd recognize in that love, that's a sweet reflection of God's covenant love for his people. God does not love you because you're good. He does not love you because you press on. You actually press on because he loves you. God does not save you because you're lovable. He does not save you because you're savable. He does not save you because you thought of it, figured it out, and understand the gospel on your own. He saves you because of his incredible preceding grace. You climb the mountain because he first throws you a rope and pulls you to himself up the mountain. You have never acted First, for God. He is always the first actor. And this is how faith infuses the Christian walk then. Why do you want to please God? Because he's at work. Why do you even understand his word? Because he is turning on the dimmer switch and opening up your eyes to the light of his illuminating grace and the Holy Spirit to help you see the words of truth and know they're true. To help you believe with conviction that they are true for you. Why would you ever want to obey him when life is hard? Because he's good. He's good. So he calls you into hard situations and hard places and hard people, not because he wants you to experience hardness, but because he wants you to need and rely on and live in his grace because he's good. Man, we have blown this as Christians. Do you think the Apostle Paul has a joyless life or a joy-filled life? Is it filled with sorrow and hurts? And yet he can confidently say that we should rejoice in the Lord and thereby find strength. He can call us in chapter 3, 1, rejoice in the Lord. He can call us to stand firm in the Lord because he knows our labor is not in vain. He knows our labor is not in vain. We live for the Lord and we have a, an unquenchable joy. We have a joy that trial cannot shake us from. But if your joy is in circumstances, that's not joy. That's a transitory happiness. I want you to imagine, going back to the anniversary, if your spouse looked across you and said, you know, I chose to love you because you're so good looking. As you begin to age, and maybe the years put on a little bit of weight, and a few wrinkles, and some hairy moles, And you're looking in the mirror, and you know that the reason she loves you is your looks. 
tell me how your heart is feeling. When you know your attractiveness is declining? Your anxiety is growing. Your fears are thriving. Your discouragement is owning you. Because there is no way your attractiveness will bind her love to you in the later years of life when youth is gone. Can you imagine if God loved you because you were good? Can you imagine if he says, God demonstrates his love towards us that you had to be good enough to be loved in order for him to love you and you realize when you look in the mirror you're getting less good. The more you see Christ, the more you're dissatisfied and you realize he must be dissatisfied. My relationship with God is in jeopardy because his love is conditioned on my goodness. That is not at all the picture of God's incredible love. God's love loves you because he chose to set his love on you forever. When he says, press on, he is not saying, I press on so that I might earn salvation, might keep God's favor. He's saying, I press on because the surpassing worth of Christ, his glory, and my entrance into his kingdom and glory. It captivates his mind. It owns his motives. It drives him to do. It, intera- it, it, it caused him to engage and interact with sinners around him with grace when hurting with joy in suffering, with a vision to see how God is kind and moving the gospel even when people are doing it for horrible reasons, to look at his death as a means of gain because of the treasure laid up for him. So my question to you is, what have you pursued this week? What have you pursued this month? What have you been pursuing the last few years? Depending on your stage of life, those answers can be entirely different. Maybe you've been pursuing, if you're a college kid, a good career launch path through good education. Maybe in your retirement years, you're just trying to pursue decent health so that way you you don't hurt every day of your life. Maybe if you're in your middle years, you're just pursuing a home where kids don't kill each other. Or maybe you're starting to look at retirement and now you're pursuing survivability when you can't work anymore. Maybe some of you have children who've wandered away from home and you're pursuing their recovery that they might come to Christ. Not all of these things are evil. In fact, most of those are noble things to pursue. But they often distract us from the central reason for the pursuit, and that is Christ himself. I should pursue my family because I pursue Christ. I should pursue support of my family because I love Jesus Christ. These things are not necessarily enemies, but it is so easy to be distracted. It is so easy to be caught up. Listen, God wants something more for you besides your happiness. He wants something much better for you, much more good for you than just your peace in this life. He wants your glory forever. He wants Christ to own fellowship with you forever and you to have fellowship with him. He wants you to look forward to the resurrection day when you will be with Christ. And seeing him, the Bible says, you will become like him. Long for that day. Live for that day. 
And so as we walk in our homes with our families, as we live as church members, as we engage our community, the question before you is, how in this moment can I pursue Christ's agenda? How can I please Christ? So dads, you cannot be so devoted to the church you lose your children because that would not please Christ. You cannot be so devoted to Christ your, your wife is starving at home or lonely at home, never seeing her husband. You must be people who recognize that Christ uses things like employment to honor his name, hard work to honor his name, good engagement with things like education and sports to honor his name. But be warned not to take your eyes off the prize. And let me just remind you, right in the center of this text, forget those things that are behind. Some of you, success lies behind and you're coasting or you're tempted to. Some of you, failure lies in your past and discouragement tempts you to quit. Make today one of those days where you say, you know what? I have let the past trip me up and I'm not pursuing Christ with vigor, with passion, with joy. I will forget but I will first ask Christ to forgive me for that sin. I will trust that he does so, and I will live in the forgiveness that comes through Christ, and today I will press on. And tomorrow, after you stumble, because you didn't even make it through Sunday afternoon without stumbling, you get up and you say, you know what? Yesterday wasn't so great. Father, forgive me for being a person who just gets caught up and I was angry with my kids. Father, help me not to be an angry man. Maybe you spend some time searching scripture so that you're not an angry man. You ask the question, how can I pursue Christ with my children with whom I was angry? Father, forgive me. So Monday morning, you wake up and it's a new day. You're going to forget what's behind and you're going to pursue Christ and his heaven. And you're going to do that because you're not going to quit this marathon because it is a marathon. This is not a 40-yard sprint. This is not a 100-meter sprint. This is not even a kilometer. This thing is a lifelong marathon the Apostle Paul had not yet finished. So we're not going to quit. By God's grace, we are going to press on. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the living word of Christ who reveals to us your character and your goodness so that we might trust you. Father, if anyone in this room is doubting how good you are and how indescribable your love is, they need only to look to Christ, who died for our sakes, that we might be forgiven and saved, that our sins might be paid for, and that righteousness might be given to us through the perfect righteous one. You have intended to do your people good from eternity past, and you've proven it through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know you're good. But in success and in suffering, in the hurts that family and friends and employment cause, in this sin-cursed world, sometimes it doesn't feel so good. Lord, help us to trust that you are good when life feels bad. Father, you are infinite in glory and beauty and goodness. And through Christ, we see the display of your character. Forgive us for ever being bored or thinking we've arrived. There could be no more glorious, no more transforming pursuit than that of Christ. 
There will never be any other pleasure that even compares to the sweetness of knowing and walking with Christ. Father, forgive us for thinking that this world's trinkets are worth chasing. Lord, help us to pursue Christ with our souls and with our passion, with all that we have in us. And Father, as we pursue Christ, help us to rightly categorize and pursue those ways in which we honor Christ in our homes, with our careers, with our friends, with our entertainment. Father, help us to use those so that we might pursue Christ with more joy rather than being slaves to those joys. I ask that this morning, Lord, you would captivate your people and motivate them to an ongoing pursuit of Jesus Christ that the affection and love for him would cause us again and again to keep walking those hard paths that we would not stop following after Christ. Father, we long for the day when we will rest with him in glory, when the achievements, the successes, and even the failures of this life will accumulate the glory of your son forever and where we as his sweet followers will rejoice and celebrate his glory. We long for the day when we are presented as though a bride, pure and spotless, because, Father, we are not pure nor spotless now. Father, help us to long for the day when we see Jesus. Help us to live for that day when we see Jesus. Help us to get rid of sin and follow after Christ for his glory and his joy, because it is in his name and for his pleasure we pray these things. Amen.